Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Gary Anthony Williams has been improvising since the 1980s when he was part of an Atlanta troupe called Laughing Matters. You've seen Williams on TV shows such as Boston Legal, where he played a cross-dressing lawyer, or as Abe on Malcolm in the Middle. He also co-starred on The Soul Man on TV Land and provided voices for animated shows from The Boondocks, American Dad, Doc McStuffins, and Bless the Hearts. He currently co-stars on Netflix The Crew with Kevin James as the guy who makes the cargo. Williams joined me to talk about his life and career, founding a short film festival during the digital boom, and whether the craziest improv he's ever seen came while performing on Whose Line Is It Anyway, or while announcing The Eric Andre Show. So let's get to it! Hey Gary, how's it going? Buddy, we are about to make internet history. (laughs) We're about to change some things that shouldn't be changed. Uh, we're about to make people laugh. A lot of crying. There's going to be yeah. a lot of tears. I think that's mostly going to be from the Netflix PR crew. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how are you, buddy? I'm good. How How is your Groundhog Day? Uh, you know what? It's it's one of the better Groundhog Days. Uh, you know, it, no man forgets his Groundhog Days. Uh, this is one of the ones that I'm going to put. You know how I have that Groundhog Day diary? I'll definitely be putting this in the Groundhog Day Diary. I've heard a lot about it, but I've I've yet to get my hands on a copy. No, I'll send you one. I'll have. Um, do you do you I, do you want the like? I have a leather bound one, and I have one that's sadly bound in groundhog skin, oh. uh, which doesn't seem appropriate. But whichever you choose of, of those. Yeah, types. I mean, you know, twenty twenty one. It's changing times, and I I want to be woke. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I also want to want to apologize right off the bat because last things first, it might be the pandemic that's making me go insane, but please tell me if I'm wrong that as you're aging, are you or are you not slowly morphing into the Irish twin of Michael K. Williams? I uh, I am Michael K. Williams. <laughs> Uh, you, know, you know what I get more than anything? Uh, Lou Gossett Jr. Okay. Apparently, I, I'm a, a Michael K. Williams, Lou Gossett Jr. Uh, had a baby, and everyone respected it, and uh, and it's me. Well, you look good. Thank you, my dear friend. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, but first things first, I, I want to ask you, you know, I... I I know a lot about the punchline, the old comedy club in Atlanta. Yeah. But I know I know nothing about what the comedy scene in Atlanta was like back in the eighties when you were starting out. Hey, let, let me walk you. <laughs> let me walk you through the nineteen hundred and eighties. You know, here's here's the crazy part. So I was I was in college. Uh, in college. There was a guy who came down to my college from the big city of Atlanta. I went to a little junior college that turned into a four-year college called Clayton State College. He came down teaching a one-day improvisational comedy class. He did a one-day session, and he pulled me aside after that, and he said to me, 
you shouldn't do improv comedy. It's not for you. So I immediately leave that little college and I go up to Atlanta and I start working doing improv comedy. <laughs> At that time, there were the clubs. There was the punchline. Mm -hmm. Later, some other places came on. But the punchline really was the biggest biggest name in straight up comedy. But then there were, there is improv comedy that was starting there. I used to go see this group called Laughing Matters that was headed by Tommy Futch, that time Emilio Pere, and a guy named Mark Farley, some other great people in there as well. I used to go watch them, watch them, watch them. And one night, a buddy of mine named Vince Tortorici said, hey, they need somebody in Laughing Matters. I had never done improv on stage before at all. At this tiny little theater, he introduced me to him, and they trusted him so much, they just let me perform with him. And they were the biggest name in Atlanta doing improv. They just let me perform that night, just because they trusted this guy, Vince Tortorici. And I got up on stage with them, and, and then every week they would say, hey, you want to come back? Until they finally made me a member. So it was mostly stand-up, like you're talking about. And then Laughing Matters was the first real improv comedy group that kicked off there. And then, now since then, others grew from there. Whole World, uh, Dad's Garage, which is another really good group there as well. Now, what kind of improv were you doing back then? Was it long form or was it short form, like the no games you see on Who's Line? No long form at all. It was all game stuff. All like game. audience volunteers and props and... Yep, yep. And our, our team, our group, uh, Laughing Matters, was very heavy on, like, we had a prop box. Uh, we were very heavy on wigs and props and crazy stuff like that. I also did a little, just to see if I could do it, stand-up comedy. Okay. How did uh, that go? So I, I did some of that. Uh, I did some at the punchline. Uh, and I did, uh, I did a little just straight up stand up. But then I had a roommate named Debbie Rauschenberg. And we did uh, Williams and Rauschenberg. She was a musician. So we did basically music parodies at those clubs. Um, I never liked stand up as much just because I so like groups. I like being able to just throw something out there and somebody else catch it and vice versa. I love watching stand-up. I actually like writing stand-up. But from the performance thing, I love improv. Like I would, I do improv every day for absolutely zero money uh, just because I truly and genuinely love doing that. Now, I didn't want to talk about the difference between the pay you get from the CW and the pay you get from Netflix. That's <laughs> Look, everybody meets my rate. Uh, <laughs> I'm very loaded. Uh, Netflix, of course, they send the jet. Um, <laughs> of course, they send the inline skates. Uh, by the way, if you don't drive, Netflix will give you a free pair of inline skates that uh, motorized that you can go anywhere on their motorized inline skates. <laughs> And with NASCAR, of course, you get your own pace car. Uh, the, the, the CW, they did something different. They had a, either a big, strong man or woman, whichever you preferred, that mm -hmm. would pick you up and carry you like a baby from set to set. So each, each has its, um, each has its uh, positives mm -hmm. and uh, very few negatives. Very well, few. That explains why Colin Mockery won't leave. He will not leave. He gets carried <laughs> everywhere. And Colin likes to be carried uh, facing out. Now, you've mm -hmm. seen like dads with the baby Bjorn. Sometimes you want the baby mm -hmm. facing in. Colin likes to be facing out, 
seeing the world with his tiny little legs kicking. <laughs> so at what point, at what point did you decide, you know, you were doing improv, you were performing musical comedy, uh, you were doing some, some small roles in TV. Mm-hmm. At what point did you sign you were ready to leave Atlanta for but, LA? Oh, man, you asked the best question, Sean. Um, in Atlanta, there was a casting director named Shay Griffin. She was also a manager and Shay would take chances on me like nobody. I remember there was a, a movie came through town and uh, she said, oh, I need you to come audition for this movie this week. And I read it and like, there's nothing in there for me. I was like, what am I auditioning for? She's like, uh, the waitress. And it was like the, the part literally said Southern teenage female white like it was everything that I was not and I was like are you serious she goes yeah I think you could do something good with it I remember walking into that room with the producers I think they were all Italian and them looking at me like what's going on and she goes just see what this guy does and then they hired me for it so this Shay Griffin would just put me out for stuff that I never should have been in a room for and one day she says to me you've done everything you can do here you should consider moving and so I did I was like I'll go give it a try during pilot season and then uh my wife at the time said uh I'm she just got laid off from her job she's like let's just move to LA so moved out here with what we got off of selling our house which I thought would last forever it lasted about a half a year (laughs) and uh and that was it it was it was really on Shay's suggestion that like go try it like you're not you know you don't have that much to lose if you just go try to see what the LA market is like so how long did it take you to kind of cash in on that move uh the at the I think it was near the end of the first year I got cast in Malcolm in the Middle as a recurring role uh and I went in for the pilot to do um this one, it was like a one-time a bathroom attendant. And then at that time, I was probably 373 something pounds, something like that. And I, and my head, I had a round boyish kind of face, um, but I looked. I can identify with that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. We are friends. <laughs> uh, and and uh, they were like, well, you, you make a good dad for this character, Stevie, who's going to be Malcolm's best friend in the show. And so then they brought me back for that role of Stevie. Uh, so that was near the end of the first year. That and the Amanda show, my first year. I immediately found my, uh, my, my tribe out here with the improv, with the improv places. I would literally go through, I think it was Backstage West or one of the papers <laughs> back then, looking at free improv classes. Like, okay, take your first class free. And I would just go from one to another just to meet people, um, taking free classes. And then the groups start asking me to come and join them. I met a bunch of guys from the Second City alumni that way. And then they were like, hey, if you want to be part of us, you can come and do shows with us every week. So I met Second City alumni. That's where I met Ryan Stiles at the time. Oh, nice. Started doing shows there. Now, you know, you mentioned with there was Malcolm in the Middle and then also Boston Legal was another example where your role was only supposed to be one time. What's so what would you tell people like what's, 
you know, aspiring actors, what's the, what's kind of the secret or the key to taking a part that's only meant to be this small thing and then showing that you're, you're worth having I, around for a while. I, I just think it, I think it's literally just enjoying whatever the heck you're doing. If, it, if it's going to be one day's work, I want to show up and enjoy it. And if that one day turns into seven years, <laughs> then that's great too. But it literally is the joy of every day. I always, my son is a computer head. He is a programmer through and through. He runs too, but he's a programmer. And I remember when he was very young, we were driving one day and we there's a line of cars coming the opposite way and people were coming home from work and I just saw a bunch of sad faces and tired faces. And I remember telling my son, never be those people. Find your joy, whatever that is, go for that. So I think the difference in me being on Boston Legal for that one episode or a couple of years in as a series regular, a couple of lucky things. One is that David E. Kelly really loved writing for that character. And two, I loved doing it. I make sure whatever I'm doing is something I love doing it or I just don't want to be there. And, and, and honestly, in this show... First of all, I never thought, oh, New York, I really want to work out in New York. I love I love Atlanta and I love L.A. I like the climate and I got friends and family there. New, despite that, when I first went up and met that cast after our first table read, after our first week of work, it was like I genuinely 100% no Hollywood crap love working with these people. Like everybody helps each other and everybody laughs with each other and feels with each other. And it's such a variety of people doing some performances. Like I was telling Sarah earlier, Sarah Stiles plays this character named Beth Page on there. She takes things in a comical way that I can't even imagine. And that's what I enjoy more than anything. If I see a stand-up doing material, I'm like, okay, if I see a stand-up doing something I've never thought of in my life, I am truly impressed. And that's the kind of stuff like Sarah brings to it. It's like stuff that I haven't seen anybody else taking an angle on something like she does. I mean, the simplicity to the delivery of a simple line, she puts something in it that I haven't seen other people do. So to get to work with somebody like that is fascinating to me. So yeah, you're you're speaking about the crew you work with on the crew. Yeah. Um, how you know, you've you've had a lot of recent work over the years in in voiceovers for animation. What what sold you not just on New York but on the idea of like doing this broad sitcom? I I love as I said about seeking joy. I love variety. Um. I, I love single camera stuff like Malcolm in the Middle was. I love it. I love single camera comedy. I love variety. The sitcom aspect is definitely the closest that a performer can come to doing stage. Um, because you have a live audience there that Friday and sometimes Thursday, there's a bunch of people in the audience as well. So it is very much like performing a broad comedy on stage. I came up on stage in high school. I did stage in college. I did stage. And then after that, I did Shakespeare. 
Uh, a lot of people just thought I, because the first thing I was booked in in LA was a comedy. People just considered me a comedic actor. In Atlanta, I did a lot of, I was the bad dude. I was chasing down Marky Post with a baseball bat, you know? I was playing this bad dude. And on stage, I was doing Agatha's Dinner Theater. And I was doing improv comedy. And I was doing Shakespeare. And I mean, I cut my teeth on stage. And I cut my teeth doing some pretty dramatic stuff as well in Shakespeare. I never get to do that anymore because Hollywood has a way of thinking that you do one thing and then continuing to ask you to do that one thing. Right. Because they're like, well, it made money. So yeah. Yeah. make me, make me some money. Make me exactly. some money. Yeah. Do that thing you do. Do that thing. <laughs> hey man, you doing that thing? Go do that thing. Don't do that other thing. I ain't seen you do that other thing. You do that thing. No, run the, you make the car run, make the yeah. car run. And I got to say, I, there was not one day going to set that it was like, Oh, got to work today. Like, it's just not that man. Like that is a, it's a cast. And I know like I, I hear actors talking about this all the time. It's, it's a cast that you want to be around. And we are, I guarantee you right now, my phone is being blown up by us just texting each other stupid things. Like that's the kind of cast it is. It's not like work day's over, click on, clock out, see you guys tomorrow. It's not that. It's like, what are you doing? What are you guys doing? Look at this stupid thing. Look at this funny thing. Like we're buddies now. And was this filmed? Was this filmed at, at Kevin's special studio that he established out in Long yeah. Island? Yeah, we filmed it on Long Island. Uh, in the the uh, lead character's female. Well, I guess I don't know how. What do you call a lead character? The uh, Beth Beth Page. Mm -hmm. So we filmed in Beth Page, Long Island. Uh, oh, yeah. So the character's name is named after that. Her name is Beth Page, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and that was cool. Like, I'd never, I'd never been to Long Island. I didn't know anything about Long Island at all. I stayed in a place called Hicksville, which reminded me of uh, just the name of it. Like, I'm from the South, like, really from the South. So I was like, oh, I'm in Hicksville again. <laughs> well, I'm in, uh, I'm in Queens in New York City, so... Yeah, I'm technically part of Long Island, so you're I, you're I, right there, buddy. Yeah, I know lots of people out there. You're and, a handshake uh, and a butt slap away from Long Island. I would suppose that filming in in Bethpage probably also contributed to the the cast bonding because well, you're not you're not in Manhattan and you're not well, part you know, of all here's, that. Here's the crazy part. Uh, at the beginning of it, the people who lived in Manhattan just hopped on the Long Island Railroad and went back to Manhattan. After COVID, they put us all up there. And as close as we were pre-COVID, the fact that we all bubbled together for 14 days without being able to leave hotel rooms, um, and then to finish shooting the last few episodes of the last three episodes of the show, we were even closer after that because, I mean, we'd been through some stuff. We were there in New York in the epicenter when it broke out. And then we came back when it was one of the first places to calm down and Netflix first show back. But we definitely, that definitely helped at the end of us becoming even closer than we were before. Wait, so what was that like in March of 2020 when you're in the middle of production? 
it happened so quickly. Uh, everything was okay. Uh, we were about to shoot a week, and then we were going to have hiatus at the end of that week. I had a bunch of buddies from New York coming, and suddenly things started happening. And my buddy called and goes, I think we're going to leave Manhattan and go to our place upstate. And then other audience members started calling. And suddenly, it it literally, in that one week, it, it caught fire there. Um, and on that uh, Friday, they said, okay, we're not, Thursday, they said, we're not going to, we'll try to have an audience. Friday, they said, we're not going to have an audience. We're going to shoot without an audience. And then after that, they said, we're going to add two, we're going to add another week to your hiatus. So see you guys in two weeks. My girlfriend and I said, oh, it'll probably be a month. We'll leave our luggage here at our Airbnb. Mm-hmm. In Hicksville. I, in Hicksville. That was March 13th. I picked my luggage up when I got back in August. So it was like, wow. Yeah, it was it was the oddest. It was the cleanest smelling airplane I'd ever been on getting back to L.A. Like they had wiped everything down. I think the flight attendants had gargled with uh, Lysol. It was the cleanest smelling airplane ride ever. It was an odd feeling because nobody knew what was up when we left that place. And then even in August, when you when you fly back, I mean, it felt like, you know, the atmosphere, at least in New York City in August, you know, people were comfortable because it was nice weather and you could be outside. But having to shoot in a studio. It, it was completely, everything was different. Like I said, it was, uh, Netflix was wise. It was two weeks total shutdown inside your hotel room, literally not being able to leave your hotel room uh, and getting called every day by the contact tracers. Uh, but when we got on set, like nobody was playing around. Like we all loved doing what we were doing and nobody wanted to mess it up. And you didn't want to be the one to mess it up and get somebody sick. You didn't want to get sick and you didn't want to get other people sick. But it was very different with, you know, the protocol there they had down and what they didn't have down they perfected very quickly like the lack of incidents that we had on that show coming back was simply amazing and the bonding of everybody feeling responsible for everybody else which also was a new york thing like that whole new york strong situation was real there more real than it was in la in la the soon as soon as people thought it was kind of safe everybody was like out crowding the bars if they let a bar open you know People were being definitely better than that when we went back to New York. Well, that's why L.A. is is having such a hard time now. Yeah. We're about to try to open up again. And it's like, (laughs) I've seen what happens. You know, people have a drink in their hand and that space, that six feet goes to six inches till my tongue is in your ear. (laughs) (laughs) That's a different Netflix series. Oh, is it? (laughs) I think of them all the same. They're fantastic. (laughs) Um, now I, but you know, I know I don't have a lot of time with you, but I, I want to ask you about this. I, I presume you didn't have it this year or this past year, or maybe you did the LA comedy shorts. You know, I, we haven't done, so, uh, yeah, years ago, my writing partner, writing, directing and comedy partner, Jeannie Roshar and I started LA comedy shorts film festival. Um, 
we did it for many years. It was actually the largest comedy film festival in the U.S. Um, but then we sold a script. We sold a movie script, a feature script that we had written. And then we had to get to work on, well, get to work on writing, writing it. And at that time, we had to let the festival go. Okay. So uh, it was fantastic, number one. I met, I met people that I still work with to this day. And some of them that I used to hire are now hiring people. I met the single most amazing people. When you can be at the forefront of up and coming talent that nobody knows about and introduce them to the world and help them get a start. I think that's for me, that's what this business is about. Like there's enough to go around. <laughs> there's enough to go around with it. Well, and you were, well, I wanted to ask you about it because you were, you were doing this festival at a, just at the time that there was this boom in online comedy. Like mm-hmm. people were discovering how to turn YouTube into a place to make short comedy films and, and, build their own reels. And so you got to witness kind of first slash secondhand how comedy was undergoing this digital revolution through YouTube, through funny or die through all the companies that have come and gone over the years. And I wonder what, what your perspective was watching that all happen. It was fantastic. Funny or die. We, we were there. They were one of our major sponsors at the time. Um, And I think we were the first festival that they were sponsoring back then. Uh, And it was like, everybody was kind of taking a chance on us. They didn't know us. They may have known some comedy that Jeannie had done or something that I had done, but they definitely didn't know who we were. They, after that first year, when they saw, we were meticulous about making sure that festival was what we wanted in a comedy festival, that you were actually getting something out of it that everything you experienced there was fun. It was a camp-like atmosphere. And you weren't going to go there and see crappy movies. Like, we did not... We would, we would, we would, because we were both filmmakers, we didn't want to just take people's money. It was like, enter early while it's cheap. Like, we would tell people that. Don't wait to the last minute. It's going to cost you two or three more times more to put your film in our festival. Enter early while it's cheap. We're not trying to get rich off of you. We're trying to like get good content out there and give people a break. And the prizes we gave, like we would give cash prizes, but more than that, we would give in industry introductions. We would get in office meetings with agents and managers and studios because we were just trying to do what would we want out of it. That's what we want to give the people who are coming to our festival. I want a chance to get my script in front of somebody, my film in front of somebody, to meet somebody who can help me with my career. So it was fantastic being on the cutting edge of that. It was some of the hardest work I've ever done. We would get in about a thousand films a year that four of us, me, Jeannie, Ryan, and our then partner, Kelly, all four of us watched every single film and we get in about a thousand scripts we'd read the overwhelming majority and then we would hire professional readers in the industry not just like a neighbor they all had to be connected to the industry like key and pill would review films for us or read scripts for us that kind of thing it had to be people who knew what the heck comedy was right yeah um great it was great to be be on that magic happening because Suddenly, everybody, we used to say, everyone can now make a short film, but not everybody should. <laughs> you, 
you know, about one in 10 would get into our festival, basically. Out of a thousand, maybe close to 80 every year would get in out of a thousand submissions. That's kind of been my sense of the whole social media era is that it's given everyone a voice. But on the other hand, it's given everyone a voice. Yeah, it's given everyone a voice, but some of y'all should shut up. (laughs) Just shut up. (laughs) Now, uh, I don't know what, what, what Kevin and his team's process is like when they're making shows, but for the crew, how much... How much room did they give you and, and Dan and everybody to to improvise? Uh, a lot. Uh, and more than that, just to the there was a lot of comfort of just having fun. I do remember like we were we were working on some some scenes and stuff like that, and like right before we shot that first episode, Kevin just going just keep it loose, play with it. And once he said that, like that was, that's the magic that especially an improviser wants to hear to just play with it. And he was big on that. And there was never a time that was episode one. There was never a time in those 10 episodes that he changed his attitude about that. And Andy Fickman who directed it, Mm -hmm. I have never in my entire career seen anyone keep a set as light and fun as Andy Fickman and get the work done. He will make you want to go out and be funnier and better. Like as an individual, he, he, he knows how to, he knows how to deal with people and he knows how to make you want to come to work and be good. And there's never any weird pressure or none of that stuff. Like it's top down stuff. And at the top is nothing but fun and lightness and let's do the best dang thing that we can absolutely do. So playing off your idea of keeping it loose then, final question. What's the craziest improv you've been a part of? Was it with the crew? Was it with um, mm-hmm. Laughing Matters? Was it with Whose Line Is It Anyway? Or was it your brief flirtation with the Eric Andre show? Wow. Eric, first of all, <laughs> I have a couple of things to say to you, sir. <laughs> Eric, okay. I would say that I'm in a group here in LA called the black version, Mm -hmm. Uh, all black improv actors. The audience gives us a typically white movie, say on golden pond. And then we improvise the black version of it that may all, and we've been doing it about 10 years. uh, And it's got a stellar cast. That may be the single most concentrated best improv that I've ever been involved in because it's music is it can be dramatic, but it's all comedy. Eric Andre's show is the craziest crap I have ever. I was in Atlanta once shooting something, and it just so happened Eric was going to be doing a live show in Atlanta. And they called me and said, but for people who don't know, I was the announcer on the Eric Andre show for years. And they called me and said, hey, Eric's in town. Do you want to live announce his show? And I was like, yeah. And I go to this place, and he runs through the audience naked. And my best friend Jerry was in the front row and Eric comes out with a water gun and he squirts it down and we're leaving that night. And I was like, your shirt's still wet. And like that water didn't dry. He goes, dude, it's mayonnaise. And Eric had put mayonnaise in a super soaker and soaked the audience. And I talked, I was like, Eric, why, what, what's up with that? He goes, 
It's a legal thing. Uh, the lawyer said I needed a clear liquid in there. I used to shoot mustard at them. And so now I went to mayonnaise. <laughs> like, that's a lot of, like, oh. It was, to me, it was like a lawsuit waiting to happen at any moment. It was dangerous and crazy. And I, I totally admire Eric. It's <laughs> it is a dangerous and crazy show. Uh, yep. And at the same like I toot everybody's horn, like Laughing Matters, that first improv group I was ever involved in in Atlanta, like those guys, I learned so much so quick by them letting me step on stage with people that I still consider some of the funniest performers in the world that some people know about in Atlanta, of course, but like in the world don't even know, a lot of people don't even know they exist. Those guys are stellar to a T and they do everything. They do music, they do quick games, they do long forms. They're brilliant performers. And I have to a hundred percent give them credit for helping me get involved in improv because I never would have really found it without those dudes. Well, Gary, I'm glad you found them. And thank you for keeping everything fun and light with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, brother. A lot of fun. Really nice talking to you. May us round headed guys uh, (laughs) live forever. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Gigglechick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.